The thing for me was to overcome my fear and just dive into things because I was so, it felt like I just didn't have the tools for the scholarship that was required in Shakespeare often. All the research and all the scansion and everything just scared the hell out of me. And one way that I found to overcome that was just to simply dive in and just get messy and start breaking things and being like, oh, that's not how that goes. Which is what you have to do as an actor anyway to make it work, right? Who cares if the scansion's right if nobody understands what you're saying? Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. My name is Garrett Vandermeer. Jim Elliott is away today. In the studio today we have Gareth Sachs. Welcome, Gareth. Thanks. Gareth Sachs has appeared on Broadway in numerous productions, including Heartbreak House and The Homecoming. He performed off-Broadway in Richard III and The Winter's Tale at the Public Theater. He's also appeared at the Mint Theater, George Street Playhouse, and the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey. He's appeared at the American Conservatory Theater, the Mark Taper Forum, and several other regional theaters across the country, and in film and television. Welcome, Gareth. Glad to be here. You've recently appeared in Hamlet at the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival. What was it like working on Hamlet in this modern digital age? It was fantastic for me, because I'm the son of two English teachers, but challenged in that area. And some of it is attentional deficit disorder, some of it, you know, whatever, the modern complaints, whatever. Bright, shiny objects take my fancy, and then I forget what I'm doing. (laughs) So I always had a hard time because, you know, you've got, you're carrying around all of these tomes with you. I started with the lexicon, uh, Alexander Schmidt's lexicon. Just an aside here, when Gareth walked into the studio, he carried with him literally (laughs) five (laughs) giant, tomes (laughs) very intimidating looking and very heavy looking uh, most of which are either my mother's or my dad's that i've stolen from them with all their notes and everything so just that's the digital age is incredible because when bonnie sent me the script i thought well i could print it out but we're cutting it and it was the best thing not to print it out because it had a more plastic feel to it And one of the things that I could do was, because the lexicon's online now, through this great resource at Tufts University, it has Dicey, who was a Shakespearean scholar, uh, Onions, and Alexander Schmidt, all online. So you can do a word search, and it will pull up the citations from those three tomes on your computer so that you can compare and, you know, contextualize things. But like that, rather than like 12 hours later, you've got the citation. I mean, every time I would look at the lexicon, I would, my head would explode because you have that tiny print and you have to go through and find the correct, is it, what is it? Is, is it HML? Is that, that's of course Hamlet, sure. Well, which scene is this? Oh, sh- I forgot which scene it is, you know. But the flip side to that, as you mentioned, you actually started this process and never really had a printed copy in front of you. No. So the actor's process that we're used to with actually marking on the page and taking right. rich notes in the margins was a completely different process. It was a different process. But, you know, like I started doing stuff. This has all been a process of shedding this uh, feeling like I don't have the tools necessary to do this and shedding that narrative and finding the tools necessary for me to do this. And part of it was revolutionary for me to have this hypertext, if you will, in front of me and be able to change the font, being able to change the color, because things like that make 
visual sense to me in a different way. They they help me do antithesis, you know, because I could choose a color for one part of the antithesis, antithesis, and then the another color for the you know contrasting. Uh, for me to look at it helped me sort of get it into my body. I mean, there's a Robert Heinlein term that I love. I I, I think the idea is you grok something. <laughs> and it's a science fiction, you know, from science fiction, but the idea being that, that you have a, a fuller understanding of it that isn't just a certainly located in your brain, but then you have an experiential understanding of something. And, I mean, that's probably heresy, and, but I don't think so. I th he's dead. God love him. Uh, and we thank him for all that he gave us. But you have to interact with it and get your hands in there and get dirty. When I went back to graduate school, I was very concerned that I would do things right, do the scansion correctly and, and all of these things. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. You should. But it's there to aid you. I mean, it is only there to if it's useful. So I want to ask another question about yeah. you. You've mentioned that your parents were a big influence on your choice to become an actor. Yes. What other mentors did you have, and how have they shaped your approach specifically to Shakespeare? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, certainly I went to Colorado College, and I went there specifically because I had gone on a tour to meet the head, then head of the department, who is named Jim Malcolm, James Malcolm. And... James Malcolm is a guy who is just an incredible educator, I think, and also uh, an incredible resource in terms of about showing me what theater could be. He exposed me to some incredible people who really kind of set my head on fire in terms of what theater could be. And he would bring in, you know, um, a wonderful man, Rick Sear, who now runs or is the head of acting at Old Globe an actor who has become a director and so had an incredible way of making the text immediate and giving you a real entry point into like what is this what what's happening here this is you know this isn't this this can be in your guts as opposed to like sort of a, a surface event of like style and comedy like this poetry can lead you and then i worked in the not-for-profit theater for about a year and a half afterwards with another professor from Colorado College, Tom Lindblade, who was an actor turned into a scholar. And he had a similar way of pushing you into the text and being pretty straight with you about, like, if he thought something you were adding something on that had nothing to do with anything, or if you thought, oh, this would be a nice flourish, and it was like, what does that have to do with anything? How does that help us enter this thing? How does that make the story for us? That's simply you showing off, or, you know, do you know what I mean? So, that's always a great lesson, I think, for a young actor. But, I mean, not that you shouldn't, like, you know, kick your legs and go as far as you can. You should. <laughs> But you do need people to tell you, like, what's what's going on? I mean, tell me the story. Much later as well, in graduate school, I had a teacher say, like, well, it's not about you. I don't care about you. I care about the story. I care. I want you to tell me a story. I want to be transported. I want you to disappear. I don't want to know that it's you anymore. In graduate school at, at NYU, Ron Van Loo, who was my chief uh, acting teacher there, 
always about, you know, like, well, what is the, who, what, when, where, how? What is happening in the text? What, is, what does it tell you about who you are when you say something that way? What is it you want? How do you get what you want? What is the action that you're playing? Barry Edelstein suit the action to the word, the word to the action. I mean, it's the player's speech. So I guess that's also thematic, is I kept running into people who, were, who kept referring me back to the text and that the text can, will lead you. The text will tell you what you need to do if you will give yourself the opportunity to be able to listen to that. And that will set your imagination and the audience's imagination on fire, I think. There's a twinning that happens that's kind of, I think, electric. And you get taken over, especially in Shakespeare. You get taken over by the size of the ideas and the size of the words and the metaphor and the beauty of the language often as well. It can be transport you. And, the, and there's an alchemy that can happen that it makes it bigger than one person. And yet many people are intimidated by Shakespeare. With, yeah, and I understand that most people agree that he was, quite, I mean, the gen genius of the English language in a lot of ways. And so that's daunting, I think, for a kid or a young man or a young woman to sort of, well, how do I, if I'm just me, I'm just this, you know, goofy kid bouncing off the walls who likes to, you know, make faces and dance around. Well, how do I enter that? What I've learned is to take all my anxieties and all my feelings of like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm up to this, and just go damn the torpedoes and go ahead and get messy. It's all in the doing, after all. I mean, that's what these things were meant to be. They weren't meant to be pieces of literature. They were meant to be actual performative events. That's where they live. So the only way to access them is to do them and then see where you are and then go back to the drawing board and do it again, you know, and to continue in that fashion. And so that was the constant exhortation, just to just to kind of dovetail in with what we were talking about earlier, from all of my mentors. What is the, what are you doing? What is the action? What is the propulsive thing? Acting is doing. And so for me, that's what liberates Shakespeare: is that it's all in the word. You know, it's on the line. You're doing. This is not cerebral sort of. This is someone in motion doing things. You've chosen a very intriguing bit of text to share with us today. <laughs> yes. Yes. And would you like to introduce it for us? And to be or not to be, he set the uh, mousetrap up. The mousetrap is to find out if the ghost has been telling him or if Hamlet's gone around the bend. It's meant to be a proof that Claudius is, is culpable and has done this thing. And so... How we got into to be or not to be was actually Hamlet writing the player's speech. So we took a line, our thoughts are ours, their ends none of our own, which is about uh, maybe three quarters of the way through the mousetrap. So the conceit was that Hamlet's walking around writing, our thoughts are ours, their ends none of our own, and beating out the scansion because we thought that was funny. So should I go ahead and read it for you? By all means. Okay. Our thoughts are ours, their ends none of our own. Our thoughts are ours, their ends none of. To be or not to be, that is the question. 
whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance, to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong. The proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to those we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Mm. And thus, the native hue of resolution is sickly door with a pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Soft, you know, the fair Ophelia. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> it occurs to me, uh, well, yeah. so much has been written about this how could you possibly improve upon what has already been said about it exactly but at the first line to be or not to be that is the question is these right. tiny tiny words only one more than one syllable right. and it's the whole speech in miniature the whole play in miniature so a challenge for an actor once you've delivered this famous iconic probably the best known line in all of the sure. English language, right. which is only 11 syllables long. Right. Right. Now you have to, there's more to the play. You have to continue talking. You have no choice. It's right. written for you. Right. So what do you do? You have to do your due diligence. I mean, you've never said it before. This is the first time that's minted. For me, the way to do it is to do the first things first. What are the first things? Well, for me, it is knowing what you're saying. And I was talking about earlier, like the, the great thing about I'm a big fan of the lexicons and dicey and onions and, and trying to get definitions of words in context where they are. And often, you know, some of the smaller words, some of the words that you just take for granted, you know, the usage of it is sometimes will skew how you understand that line to be parsed. Well, we could dispense with that step right away, because at least as far as the first line goes, it's hard to imagine anyone versed in the English language who would need to look up any of those words, to be or not to be, that is the question. Well, I, that, that, that could be. It can be so many different things. To be or not to be, for me, is the, the idea of like to, to be fully alive or somehow dead and not engaged. What's the next step then? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, not obviously, but 
there's a reason why they're singularly stressed words. And you have to, as an actor, find what that is for you. So all of these things are things to set your imagination on fire into what is to be or not to be. You know, like for us, he's in the midst of making the mousetrap. And because you, one uses oneself, my, my proclivity to go on tangents and, and be distracted by bright, shiny objects, it, it literally informs my reading of it in terms of that he's got, he comes upon that great philosophic sort of like chasm of like, wow, how does one become fully alive, you know? And if you would know that life is simply just suffering, how, why would you bear it? Why do we bear it? I mean, to, to, you know, like, to be fully alive is to be in, you know, fear of death and, and, in, and, and to be emotionally engaged in the world. There isn't another way for me. There's suicide or not. But I don't think it's a meditation on that. I think it's a meditation on, like, being fully yourself, using all of your faculties, being alive even in the face of great horror and, and, and emotional turmoil. What we really try to explore here on The State of Shakespeare yeah. is the process of, of taking these words on a page and turning them into a theatrical experience and right. how an actor actually approaches that right. on a real nuts and bolts level. Right, right. I first start with meaning and sense and as much as I can get as much information about the words. Now, you're right about this first one, to be or not to be. It is deceptively simple. It's humongous in its scope. So I think what you have to do as an actor is to pull it apart and go a little crazy so that you're doing the thing of which is the action that you're being asked to do here in the speech, which is figure it out. That's what he's doing. And if you play that action through you as a vehicle, you'll do the speech and not be concerned with whether or not anybody, like whether it's the most iconic speech in the English language or not. You know, you'll be doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is figure it out. I mean, I think that is a, a way that I use to release me from, you know, these kind of awful messages that we have about, like, I have to, it has to be something, something else. Well, no, it has to be, it has to live in their minds. It is not for me. It's for me to c communicate clearly as I know how and then for them to parse. It's not for you, it's for them. They get it. So to go back to some nuts and bolts, I mean, scansion can, can definitely help. You have the antithesis, you have the, you know, the way that you set the word against the word, as Barton says. All of those tools you have to put in to play when you need them. And, and you know, like their thoughts about phrasing. I hope your listeners are, are might be familiar with that, the idea that some people feel like at the end of a verse line, that's when a breath comes. You take the breath, and then you phrase with the next line. And then I always, to me, it's about the communication of the idea. And, and it's you have to speak the size of the thought. And Gareth Sachs, die hard punctuationist oh jesus am i oh dear oh no although you know that you've taken a stand I, well yes i've gotten really voluble i've had too much coffee but i think often again this is something we do we're so scared that we won't do it right or we won't be understood or the you know the scansion will someone will 
be like, oh, no, no, that's not how that line scans, that we, we stop ourselves. And I say, if that sets your imagination on fire, yeah, then that, those are the clues, you know? That's, that's another way to enter it. You just have to take your anxieties or your, your, you know, your feelings along with you and just barrel headlong into it. Uh, as a professor once said to me, break your head on it. Break your head open. Gareth Sachs, thank you so much for being here on The State of Shakespeare today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Anytime. I'm Garrett Vandermeer, and thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for The State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.